1971, I walked into my first grade classroom. I was not sure that I was made for school. The idea of sitting inside all day, having to be quiet, having to be still, listening to somebody talking about math and handwriting and reading, it sounded awful. I didn't know why anybody would want to go there. I wanted to be home, feral, <laughs> playing with friends, building forts, cutting through the woods, riding my bike, going to the lake. I wanted to do anything but school. I had no idea there had been a civil rights movement at this time. I didn't know anything about segregation or desegregation. I had no idea that my first grade teacher, Miss Williams, had to fight to get her job, had to fight to keep her job, or that she was a trailblazer in the Atlanta school system. What I do remember is she didn't treat us like babies. She would brag on us. She would brag on our parents. She would tell us, your parents are hard workers. Y'all should be proud of them. She would tell us how smart we were, how responsible we were and then she would prove it. I remember one specific thing. She walks in one day and she had every one of us a felt tip pen, and she allowed us to use ink to practice our handwriting, and she had bought them with her own money. Well, we were so proud of it. We practiced our writing with such enthusiasm, even our parents would not have let us have a felt tip marker. It wouldn't happen. So clearly, Miss Williams knew my maturity better than my parents. She would also sing to us. And after a couple of days, we would start singing along. And she told us that we needed to sing with gusto. I had no idea that I was singing civil rights songs. All I knew is at the end of our nine months together, I knew she loved me and I knew I loved her. The Moores Ford Bridge lynchings, the last mass lynching in the United States. On July 14, 1946, a sharecropper named Roger Malcolm was accused of stabbing a farmer named Barnett Hester with an ice pick. Mr. Malcolm went to jail that night. His wife was fearful that a mob would storm the jail and kill him. So she begged her boss, Loy Harrison, who owned the farm, was one of the largest landowners in Monroe County, to please go bail him out. And Loy Harrison said no. Miss Malcolm asked Loy Harrison repeatedly for the next 11 days to please go bail him out. He refused. Then suddenly, on July 25th, he told Miss Malcolm, go get the Dorseys and let's go to town and get Roger out of jail. Mr. Harrison did not go back on the paved road as the crow flies to his farm. He took the unpaved long way home. As he approached the small Moores Ford Bridge, there was a mob waiting. Four young African Americans are stopped on the Moores Ford Bridge, drug out of their car, and murdered. They were shot over a hundred times apiece by the mob that stopped them on the bridge. This case is the coldest case I've ever worked. This case is not only inactive right now, the FBI closed it 
with no arrest and nobody named as a person of interest. There's a book called Fire in the Cane Break, and I want to read y'all just a little part of it. The sheriff turns onto Washington Street, drove two blocks north of the courthouse, and parked in back of the two-story cinder block jail. Deputy Sheriff Lewis Howard, who served as the county jailer, took Roger Malcolm from the car and led him into a group cell. After locking him in with two white prisoners because the county jail wasn't segregated by race, he walked down the hallway leading to the adjoining brick house where he lived with his family. He secured the heavy metal door behind him. Across town, late that Sunday night, two doctors left the operating room and met Barnett Hester's father and brothers in the corridor of the Walton County Hospital. They didn't have good news. The blade that Roger Malcolm's pocket knife had sliced through the upper region of Barnett's stomach, lacerating his intestine and puncturing his lung. The doctors had washed the protruding section of intestine and reconnected it. Then they inserted a tube to drain the fluid from his lung. The risk of infection was grave. The doctor said they weren't sure Barnett would live out the week. We get to welcome the author of those words. The author of Fire in a Cane Break is going to join us, and we're going to talk about the importance of the historical record that she put together. That's how I see it. This is more than a book. To me, this is absolutely one of the only historical records we've been able to peruse and look at and study. I am so pleased to welcome Laura Wexler to Zone 7. Thank you so much for having me, Cheryl. That was the nicest introduction, and I loved your story. Oh, my gosh. I was just right there with you in that kindergarten classroom with your felt-tip pen. <laughs> she was awesome, I'm telling you. So let's talk a little bit about your background, though, because I want people to know you were living in Athens, you were teaching at the University of Georgia when you heard about the massacre at Moore's Ford Bridge. I think you were an assistant editor with Georgia Magazine. Yeah, I wasn't actually teaching at the time. I had um, just started, so let's see, I finished my graduate degree in um, May 1997, and then I moved that summer to Athens because my my boyfriend at the time was was working at the public radio station, um, and I had gotten this job at the Georgia University of Georgia Alumni Magazine, which was called Georgia Magazine. And part of what I did um, just to like get familiar with the University of Georgia and look for story ideas for the magazine was to read the newspaper, um, the red and black, every day. That's how I learned about this case. One day in 1997, there was a an editorial by a man named Rich Rusk, who lived in Oconee County. And he was letting people know about this group that had formed, um, which was called the Moores Ford Memorial Committee. And this was a biracial group of black and white people who were um, had formed and were intent on memorializing the four victims of the Moores Ford lynching. 
Uh, this was before Google. <laughs> you, can, you remember before Google, right? I yeah, sure do. Um, but some of your <laughs> listeners may not. But anyway, I had never heard of this lynching. Uh, I'd never heard of the Morris Ford lynching. I had no idea that as late as 1946, you know, four people could be lynched and it wouldn't be something that we learned about in school like we learned about the killing of the three civil rights workers and Emmett Till. And it, so it, I was surprised that this had happened and I was surprised that I didn't know about it if it happened. Does that make sense? Oh, it does. Absolutely. I'm a native Atlantan, born and raised in Georgia, seventh and eighth generation. I had never heard of it. I mean, I went to college at Georgia State. I had never heard of it. And Tyrone Brooks got me involved and he said, if you're looking at cold cases, why are you not looking at Morris Ford Bridge? And I was like, well, tell me about it. That's kind of what happened. But I want to go back a little bit about you just for a second before we move forward. So now you're living in Baltimore and you're a full-time writer. I work in lots of different genres, but everything is really united by by narrative storytelling, um, which is why I was so tickled by your story about your teacher. And so whether it's a true story or it's based on a true story or it's something out of my imagination, I'm really interested in the power of story to really connect us to places and people that we are unfamiliar with. I can tell you that your book is captivating. It is a story and you're telling a beautiful, you're right there. Every time you turn the page, you can see it, you can understand it. And I think you have a real gift of making sure that the reader understands the importance of this thing 360. Like you don't tell just one side, which is pretty fascinating. And I figured it was pretty hard to do. And I want to talk a little bit about that. Let's start at the very beginning, which to me is the title. How did you come up with the title? You know, I had never lived in the South before, so lots of things were unfamiliar to me when I moved to Athens, Georgia. And when I went and first started talking to people about this lynching in Walton and Oconee County. But early on, one thing I heard some of the African-American people I talked to say um, when they were describing the lynching, they said it sounded like a fire in a cane break. And at first, I didn't want to let anyone know that I, that I didn't know what a cane break was, and I wasn't sure what a fire in a cane break sounded like. And then I asked somebody, and they told me that a cane break is like a thicket of cane. You may know this, but to me, this was completely new information. So like bamboo, wild cane can you know grow on the riverbanks or grow in areas that people might want to plant with crops. And so to get rid of these canes, they would light a fire to clear the land. And because the stalks are hollow, they pop, they explode. And so that was what people referred to to describe the sound of the gunshots that, and what they were trying to do was convey how many gunshots they had heard. Like it wasn't just pop. It was pop, 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 pop. So Cheryl, have you like, you've been in a place where people have been clearing river cane and you've heard it? Oh, absolutely. It's more than a, a pop. I mean, if you didn't know it was coming, it would get your undivided attention. Scary. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, it's loud. And especially if you've got a, you know, a bushel of it, 
because you've, you know, cleared all day and now you're going to, you know, burn a pile of it. There's no way you would not know exactly what you were hearing. Once I understood what that was, I, I really wanted to use it as the title because it's a phrase that is, like you said, it's local. Like some people will get it right away. Even people who don't get it will understand that there's something violent with the fire and the, you know, just even the word cane break is kind of like a violent sounding word, even if you don't know. Part of what I wanted to do was really tell this story through the eyes of the people who experienced it. And so using their idioms, using their language was really important to me. I agree completely. I was going to say something very similar to me by using the way they would talk, the way they would phrase the imagery. I mean, I think that's a very Southern thing. And, you know, especially if you grew up with, you know, great grandparents or grandparents or great aunts and uncles, ways that they talked, that if you were lucky enough to capture it on film, you can go back and listen to it and be amazed how your ancestors spoke even a generation back. You were able to locate two of the suspects that were still living and talk to them. Did you get a sense when they agreed to talk to you that they were going to just open up and let you know this is my side? Even a deathbed confession? Well, I wouldn't say that they technically agreed to talk to me. (laughs) (laughs) I would say more that that I showed up at their front door and they talked to me for a little bit before they said they were done. You know, I believe I actually did get into one of them, their houses, but they were not, you know, the attitude they had, first of all, was... One that I heard from from many of the people, many of the white people that I tried to interview about this in Walton County and Oconee County, which was, why are you bringing this up? Why does this matter? What are you doing here? You're wasting your time. This doesn't mean anything. There wasn't really an interest helping me tell the story. In this case, because I was able to say, because I had this FBI report that I had not gotten through Freedom of Information Act, so it did, it wasn't, um, you know, wasn't censored. So when I showed up, I asked them questions. They didn't know that I had the FBI report. They didn't know that I knew, you know, what they had told the agents back in 1946. But what they told me was the very same thing that they had told the agents. So their their stories had stuck. They were sticking to them. They were as suspicious now as they were then. Again, like it was suspicious, but there wasn't anything that that would really crack the case and and you know put them there with a gun in their hand. And that was really the problem, you know, with the whole investigation. Well, you know, when you and I first met, we met at the reenactment, at the bridge, and everything was going on, and the FBI was there, and Keith Bochamp was there, and Tyrone Brooks, and Bobby Howard, and so many other community leaders and politicians. What fascinated me was I thought there's enough power players here that surely we're going to be able to get something done. We're going to be able to move it in some way. 
whether it was, hey, we're going to offer everybody a deal if you confess or a deathbed confession or somebody's going to come forward and say, I have a family member that told me this story and here's the gun that they left along with the story. But that never happened. None of it. I know. And when you think about it, I remember like reading somewhere that like any time more than one person is involved in a crime, the chances, you know, the chances that the word will get out or like multiply exponentially. Right. So if you think like at a minimum, say a very conservative estimate would be 10 people were in this um, we're in this mob that that waylaid Lloyd Harrison's car and killed these four people. So you would think like even if it were just 10, somebody, somebody would have, like you said, cracked or somebody's family member would have found out and said something. I, I you know, I thought a lot about why that didn't happen. And all I can say, all I could, all I could conclude was their loyalty to each other was, you know, these people were all sort of interrelated and they were like a clan in this, not in the sense of the Ku Klux Klan, although they shared those ideas, but in the sense of like, they were a tribe and they were loyal to that group above all else. And they didn't like the FBI. They didn't like the newspaper people. They didn't like, um, you know, the civil rights, the U.S. attorneys and the civil rights lawyers. They, it was an us against them situation at the time. And, you know, years later, you think, oh, their descendants wouldn't all have that same mindset, but Mm -hmm. it's still family. You know, it's still yep. family. That is the only way I can understand. I can understand why none of the descendants ever have said anything. In terms of the FBI's inability to, you know, to do anything all these years later, I think what they're up against is no physical evidence. So even if someone came forward and confessed, it would be difficult to even authenticate a confession. But this lynching, it did have some aspects that were not like most lynchings. One, it had multiple victims. Two of those victims were women, and the other was an Army veteran. That, I think, gave an element of two things. One, I think it did get President Truman his attention to say, we've got to do something about this. We can't allow these lynchings to keep occurring especially if they're going to involve veterans and women. And then the other thing that I think happened for that town is they would kill possibly a pregnant female. They would kill an Army veteran. I know I'm not safe, if that's the case. Yeah, I think that's true. I think it wasn't only Black people in that area that were scared to talk to the FBI because of the consequences to their own safety or their loved one's safety, but also white people were scared to be seen talking to the FBI because they were scared of, yes, like you said, if they did, if they did these people like that, what would they do to me? Sure. 
And then there's the reality of ruining your family name. Yeah. And just, I think when you look at the fact that law enforcement was at the very least supportive and at the most complicit, then you think, well, if the law enforcement, if like, you know, the rule of law in town was in on this, then so am I now going to get arrested for something I didn't do because I talked out about this? You know, it's just, it, it, I think it ran so deep that it wasn't safe. And, you know, you're right. This, this lynching was unique in some ways. I mean, the fact that this, the FBI was in, was in this area, you know, for four months with 20 odd agents, that was a big investigation. That was a big use of resources. Hoover obviously wasn't a friend to black people and wasn't thrilled that he was being compelled to send FBI agents there. But his boss, Tom Clark and Truman, like there was a will to to try to do something, if only because I think for Truman, it was like it, it didn't it looked like we were not running a democracy when things like this happened. In your book, what do you think some of the most compelling evidence is that Number one, law enforcement may have actually even been involved to a degree. And you remember the sheriff saying, I let somebody borrow my gun. I don't remember who. And Yeah, I think, I mean, particularly Lewis Howard, who, as as you mentioned in the in the excerpt we read um, at the beginning of our conversation, who was the jailer. So there's some evidence that he knew there was a threat on Roger Malcolm's life that, you know, there had been a meeting in a place called Toller's Woods, and there had been talk that he would have had to know about of the of a mob coming to try to steal Roger out of jail forci- forcibly, had been as had been done earlier in the history of the county. The U.S. attorney who was presenting the case to the grand jury in Athens in December at the end of the investigation, one of the things that they discovered during the course of the grand jury was that there was a a prisoner in the Walton County Jail who was there at the same time as Roger Malcolm, who had actually been moved to safety on a particular night because the jailer, Lewis Howard, had told him that some people were coming to get Roger Malcolm and he didn't he wanted to make sure they didn't take this other guy instead. And to me, that was such a that was such a huge turn in the case that they they had this evidence because that was like clear proof that there was a color of law violation, which was actually a federal crime. Right. If they could show that the people who were charged with keeping Roger Malcolm safe had actually abused their power and caused him danger, then that would be a federal civil rights violation. But it never went anywhere. It like fizzled out. It never led to anything in the grand jury, which actually brings me to, you know, something that I was thinking about in terms of what you said about my book being one of the only historical records. And that is that after I finished the book, my book and published it a few years later, there was a gentleman from Washington, D.C. who wanted to write his own book about um, the lynching. And in the course of doing that, 
he stumbled. I mean, he really accidentally stumbled across the transcripts from the grand jury in this case that were in the National Archives. I was so surprised to hear that he had found them because when I started researching, I had asked people, where are the transcripts of this grand jury? This was a three-week grand jury. hundred people had come and been uh, had testified before the grand jury. Like, where are these transcripts? And what I had been told by the civil rights section was that because the grand jury did not indict anybody on federal charges, the transcripts would not have been produced. So they wouldn't have created like an official transcript because, you know, when no one's indicted, they don't want to have this transcript made because no one was ever charged. And it could, it could, you know, could be bad for the people whose names were, you know, were in it. So they said there's either no transcript or if there is a transcript, you would not be able to see it because grand jury, federal grand jury transcripts are sealed. Okay. So I just was like, I'm not going to, I'm not even going to waste any time on that. I'm going to deal with FBI report. I'm going to deal with other documents from the civil rights section. So this gentleman stumbled on these transcripts. Wow. Like what a mother load, right? Because that question I have of like, why did this lead on Lewis Howard go nowhere? What did Lloyd Harrison say in his many hours in front of the grand jury? All of this, we would get to know, we would get to hear, get to see if these transcripts were unsealed. So once he discovered them, that began a legal battle that went through several stages of, of the court system before finally getting stopped and the and the federal judges saying no these transcripts cannot be unsealed because of the grand jury rule of secrecy to me that is a huge huge disservice and a huge shame because i mean so many people whose names would be in this transcripts are no longer living and so i think the threat to people is very very low the benefit to understanding not just what happened in this case, but understanding how a grand jury worked at this time when it was dealing with a case like this, I think it would be such an immense contribution to our understanding of these situations and why so often no one was brought to justice. So as it stands now, they exist and they're sealed and no one's looking at them and they're turning to dust in a box. And we know there's answers in there. Just the list of the people they called would show you the direction they were going. If we had a list of all the 100 people, then you would be able to paint a picture of this is what they thought. These were the people they were centered on. You know, they're all farmers, they're bankers, they're jailers, they're teachers, they're these people, it's the entire town, which is what some of the witnesses have said. Those 11 days from the time Mr. Hester was stabbed till the events on Moore's Ford Bridge, the lynching, those 11 days to me are so critical. Laura, I don't know if you've seen this. There's a photograph of Loy Harrison and I've never heard anybody talk about it. I've never heard anybody pinpoint it. 
but he's sitting in his car. Now, you know the other pictures where he's got the sheriff there and the guy from the Atlanta Journal just happens to be there and, and they're just showing, oh, this is how they were tied together and he knows everything so perfect. He's sitting in his car and he's got his hand up on the driver's door and he's turned like he's going to step right out. So he's not where his feet are on the gas pedal. His feet are outside the, the vehicle. You can see the passenger's door and window. You can see fingerprints. Really? If you look at it, at the top of that window that's partially rolled down, you can see where it looks like somebody was holding like a child would peep out. And then on the outside of the door, you can see a handprint that's upside down. So like if you're dragging me out of that car and I'm trying to stop you from getting me, that's what it looks like to me. And again, I've never heard anybody talk about what I see. And this leaps off this picture to me because I don't know if this was Mr. Malcolm or Miss Dorsey. I don't know who it was, but it's plain as day. Oh, my gosh. I just I see the handprint. That, to me, is the most powerful picture because, again, he's sitting in that car with no remorse, no sadness. I mean, these were four people he knew. He had known them for years. They lived on his property. And for him to have no emotion about it is pretty telling to me, too. You know, you you have such a I never would have seen that. I think I was always just looking at his face. If not for your book, we would not have the documentation that we do on this case. And I think it's an important case. I think it's one of those not just for historical purposes, but again, for people to understand the times. 1946 is not that long ago. And you have a town, and I know you experienced this, but when you go back, you still have people that separate and don't want to talk. You've got both communities that have their own reasons that are extraordinarily valid for not talking to outsiders. When I started writing this book, I wanted to solve the case. That's I was really motivated by that. I really thought once I got that FBI report, I felt like somebody was going to say, you know, you're right. It's time. I'm finally going to spill. You know, it was naive. I see now, but I just, I really, really wanted to do that. And I was disappointed and have been disappointed every time the case is reopened and there really is no progress made on prosecution. But what has been heartening is that more and more people know about this case. I mean, I, you know, this book has been out since 2003, so it's 20 years and I still get probably a couple times a week, I still get somebody, often it's someone from the South, someone from Georgia, writing me, emailing me through my website saying like, I just read about this. I had no idea. Thank you. You know, there's just, I'm proud that despite not being able to get justice, there was a way in which doing this has kind of put it out in the open and made it public in a way. And lots of people have come behind me and before me putting pieces together. You know, they really have doing documentaries, you know, writing their own books. That's been something that has been good to see. Well, you know, my students got such a life lesson every time we had any involvement with Morris Ford Bridge, because there was always somebody just extraordinary 
that was able to teach them in some way. But I'll tell you one thing that you may not have ever heard this part of the story, but we took a 45-passenger bus once when we were going to search for the evidence. And our original driver got ill, so we had a substitute driver that only had this obscure address in the middle of nowhere. So from Atlanta, we go out to the bridge, and he just sees these students kind of go out into this field, and they start doing their thing. And he kept the bus on so the air conditioner, we could come back every now and then and, you know, cool down. So I go back on the bus once, and he said, can I ask you something? <laughs> he goes, what is going on? <laughs> like, he couldn't, for the life of him, figure it out. So I told him, and I told him about, you know, the lynching and everything. And he said, Emmett Till was my cousin. So I immediately got all the students to come back on the bus and then he talked for probably a good 30 minutes just about growing up and the stories he heard. And and he just told, you know, a lot of the stories about, you know, all what, you know, growing up in that shadow of tragedy and how it affected him, even though he never had an opportunity to know Emmett. Yeah. So, again, you don't ever know who you're affecting. And I know what your book did for the students at the time. I mean, it was our roadmap because there was nothing else. Thank you for saying that it was such an education for me and it really it helped me not only understand this time and place but also the present like it gave me an understanding of how people are coming into the present with this inherited trauma with this inherited fear with a distrust of law enforcement given their participation in events like this, like it really helped me, it helped build a bridge for me between the present and the past. Well, y'all, I'm going to end Zone 7 the way that I always do. And tonight I'm going to end it with a quote from somebody from probably my original Zone 7, my first grade teacher, Miss Williams. My best friend and I from first grade got to go visit with her for her 100th birthday. And I asked her what she does to stay so young. Well, she started to laugh and she said, I do what I wanna do and when I wanna do it every day. How lucky are we that what she wanted to do was support us, teach us, and love us. I'm Cheryl McCollum and this is Zone 7.